Folks, understand this. Until the last several hundred years, no one in church history seriously questioned the inerrancy of Scripture. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What about you, friend? What is your view of Scripture? Do you hold the same respect for the authority of Scripture as Jesus? Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of his series titled, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. When it came to the Old and New Testaments, Christ Jesus not only believed in their eternal authority and their verbal and plenary inspiration, but also in their complete inerrancy. Inerrancy means freedom from error, infallible. In Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that it's easier for the universe to be destroyed than for anything written in Scripture to fail to happen. Christ affirms the utter trustworthiness, truthfulness, and certainty of the Scripture. Question is, do you as well? Let's find out more as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5. We're studying Jesus' own view of the Scripture. There was an article that I first read in November of 2004 in Christianity Today. In this article, they introduced a man who at the time was not so well known. He was was and is the pastor of an emerging church. His name is Rob Bell and his wife, Kristen. He pastors a huge community in Grand Grand Rapids called Mars Hill. In that article in 2004 in Christianity Today, the author of that article, after having interviewed them and learned of where they were theologically, writes this, the Bells found themselves increasingly uncomfortable with church. Kristen says, life in the church had become so small. It had worked for me for a long time, then it stopped working. The author goes on to say, the Bells started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself. Discovering the Bible as a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat. The Bible is still the center for us, Rob says, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. I grew up thinking that we'd figured out the Bible, Kristen says, And we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means. And yet I feel like life is big again. Like life used to be black and white, and now it's in color. In other words, understanding the Bible and what it means is like black and white and dull and boring. But not understanding it and having it all be complete mystery to you, that's living color. Why do they say that? Here's the key. They discovered, quote, the Bible as a human product, Rob says, rather than the product of divine fiat. In other words, it came from men and not from God. 
from the poison fountain of Bell's low view of Scripture has come since that time a steady stream of poisoned waters. He has come to question almost everything we hold dear. He has questioned that Jesus died as a substitute in the place of sinners. He has questioned the sinfulness of homosexuality, the reality of hell, the exclusiveness of the gospel. In fact, in a recent book entitled Love Wins, which you might have heard about, Bell exposes the reality that he is, in essence, a universalist. No need for hell because everybody's going to be in. Love will win. God's love will win. And everybody will be with him. Does he believe that that's what the Bible consistently teaches? That's the wrong question. To Bell, you don't need to ask that question. It's irrelevant because the Bible is a fallible human product that in the end doesn't really matter. You can't know it. You don't need to try to know it. You don't need to understand it. We are learning from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus' view of the Scripture was entirely different. Jesus held a view that was diametrically opposed to every low view of Scripture. In fact, Jesus' own view of the Scriptures could not have been any higher. And you and I believe what we believe about the Bible because of Jesus Christ and because of what He believed about the Bible. We believe the Old Testament to be God's inspired, inerrant word because Jesus affirmed it to be so. We believe the New Testament to be what Jesus himself wanted to express because he handpicked and pre-authenticated those who would write it. And he told them, you remember in the Upper Room Discourse, that the Spirit would bring to their minds everything he had taught them. So our ultimate authority then is Jesus Christ. And in reality, that's the point Jesus is making as he opens the body of his message that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Look at it again in Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus is already in the Beatitudes explained what citizens of his kingdom are like. This is who we are. This is how we respond in life. And because of that, verses 10 through 12, this is how we're treated. We're often persecuted in various ways, insulted, spoken evil of. But in spite of all of that, verses 13 through 16, we have a powerful influence in the world because God has made it to be so. And that influence comes primarily because of who we are and what we do in response to who we are. Now, that brings us to verse 17 and to the body of the message. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us here that a true subject of his spiritual kingdom will always have a right relationship to the scripture. You can identify a Christian always by how he responds to the Bible. Now, Jesus identifies here in this passage three responses to Scripture that should characterize every genuine believer. In verse 17, he tells us that we need to understand Jesus' relationship to the Scripture. Verse 18, we must believe Jesus' view of the Scripture. And in verses 19 to 20, we must accept Jesus' diagnosis with the Scripture. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. That is, you are either the least in the kingdom of heaven, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or you are not in the kingdom of heaven at all. All of that is determined by your response to the Scripture. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first response in verse 17, and it is understand Jesus' relationship to the Scripture. In the first century, the 39 books that we call the Old Testament, those were considered to be the inspired scriptures. They were referred to by the label Jesus uses here, the law or the prophets. That was the entire content of what we call the Old Testament. We know that for certain. And Jesus adds his own voice here, and he unequivocally says that the content that is in the 39 books of our Old Testament today That same content he identifies as God's very words to us. Specifically, verse 17 makes two points about how we're to think about that Old Testament scripture and his relationship to it. First of all, Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Jesus told his disciples, don't you for a moment believe the common misperception that I have come to tear down either in my life or in my teaching the authority of the Old Testament. So what was his relationship to the Old Testament? Well, in the second half of verse 17, he explains it. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. We talked about this. He came to fulfill it really in three different ways. He came to fulfill it by bringing out its complete meaning, by teaching us what God really meant instead of what the rabbis were teaching in many cases, which wasn't what God meant at all. Secondly, he fulfilled it by bringing obedience to it, by perfectly obeying it in his life. And then thirdly, he fulfilled the Old Testament by bringing its complete message to fruition in his own person. He is the person to whom the entire Old Testament pointed. So Jesus explained the Old Testament in his teaching. He obeyed the Old Testament in his life, and he embodied the Old Testament in his person. He fulfilled it. Now, last week, we started to consider a second response that all who truly belong to Jesus' kingdom should have toward the Scripture. Not only must we understand Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scripture, but secondly, we must believe Jesus' view of the Scripture. We must, as His followers, as His disciples, believe about the Scripture what He believed. And He tells us in 
the magnificent verse, verse 18. For truly I say to you, for amen, I am saying to you. Jesus is saying, here is reality as I know it to be. Listen carefully. He he introduces it with that statement of, of weight and veritas. For truly I say to you, heaven and earth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. We learned that in the New Testament, the word law that Jesus uses here often refers to the entire Old Testament Scripture. That's how Jesus is using it in verse 18, just as he spoke of the entire Old Testament in verse 17 as the law and the prophets, another title that was often used for the entire Old Testament. So Jesus here affirms in the strongest possible terms his confidence in the Scripture. The only scripture they had at the time, what we call the Old Testament, the same content that is in the 39 books of what we call the Old Testament. And specifically, he affirms his confidence in several unchanging attributes of the scripture. Last time we looked at a couple of these. Let me just briefly remind you. The first attribute Jesus identifies of the scripture is its permanent authority. Until heaven and earth pass away. That's a proverbial kind of saying. It means never, not going to happen. Jesus says it's far easier for the universe as we know it to go out of existence than for the smallest little stroke of a letter of God's word to fail. It's more enduring than the universe itself. If you remember what that little stroke looked like, the little pin stroke that distinguishes one letter from another in Hebrew, Jesus says the entire universe could go out of existence before one of those little strokes in the Old Testament will fail. It's permanent, it's unchanging, it's unwavering, it is eternal. It has eternal authority. It is forever relevant and forever authoritative. Secondly, Jesus expressed his confidence in this verse in its verbal inspiration. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Inspiration. That simply means that Scripture is the product of the breath of God. God breathed it out as he spoke it. But God is not only the source of the thoughts of Scripture, but he's also the the source of the very words themselves. That's what we mean by the word verbal. It's breathed out by God. That's inspiration. Even down to the words, that's verbal. But Jesus goes even farther. Notice in verse 18, he says that the Old Testament scriptures were breathed out by God, not only in their individual words, but even down to the smallest individual letters, the little yod in Hebrew, that looks a lot like our apostrophe in English. Even down to that smallest letter and the smallest strokes that distinguish one letter from another. Picture our capital O in English and our capital Q. All that distinguishes them is that tiny little pen stroke, the bottom right-hand corner of the Q. There are letters and strokes like that in in Hebrew. And Jesus is saying that not one of those little distinguishing strokes that marks out one letter from another will pass away 
until all is fulfilled. Another unchanging attribute that Jesus ascribed to the Scripture is its plenary inspiration. Verbal means the words. Plenary means all. It's all breathed out by God. Notice verse 18. Not the smallest letter or stroke, not one of them, shall pass from the law until what? All is accomplished. Not only the individual parts are breathed out by God, but it's all collectively breathed out by God in its entirety. Now that's where we left off last week and where I want us to pick up today. Because in this amazing verse, verse 18, Jesus affirms two more attributes of the Scripture. When it came to the Scripture, Jesus not only believed in its eternal authority and in its verbal inspiration and in its plenary inspiration, but also its complete inerrancy. It's complete inerrancy. Look again at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, what? Until all is accomplished. That is a statement of the truthfulness and certainty and trustworthiness of all of the Scripture, down to its very letter and stroke. That is what theologians call inerrancy. Now, let me define inerrancy for you. Actually, this is not my definition. This is the definition by Paul Feinberg. Here's what he writes. When all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs, that means the actual documents Moses wrote on, the prophets wrote on, and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms. Let me read that again. When all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms. That includes, when we say all, we mean everything that's in Scripture. That includes the doctrine of Scripture, how a man should be saved, man's nature before God as a sinner, the character of God, how things will end in eschatology, everything the Scripture affirms in its doctrine, but also everything the Scripture affirms in its ethics, the sinfulness of homosexuality, the sinfulness of adultery, the sinfulness of lust, the sinfulness of pride, how we should love God with our whole heart and love others as ourselves, the ethics of Scripture, the doctrine, the ethics, but also inerrancy affirms that the Scripture is without error and is speaking the entire truth, whatever it speaks of. That means when the Scripture touches on social sciences, it's true and never in error. When the Scripture speaks of the physical sciences, it's true and never in error when properly interpreted. When it speaks of the life sciences, the same thing is true. So, that's what Jesus is affirming. Now, before we look at Matthew 5, I want to back up a moment and look at the bigger picture of this. There are two lines of argument for biblical inerrancy. One of those lines is the historical argument. The other is the biblical argument. Let's look first at the historical argument for inerrancy. What do I mean by the historical argument? I mean that when you look at church history, 
you will find that the church has spoken with one voice on this issue. Let me read for you a quote from Greg Allison in his book, Historical Theology. Basically, he's recounting what the church has believed about various doctrines through the time of the church. Here's what he writes. The church has historically acknowledged that Scripture in its original manuscripts and properly interpreted is completely true and without any error in everything it affirms, whether that has to do with doctrine, moral conduct, or matters of history, cosmology, geography, and the like. Over time, the church has expressed this conviction by applying a number of terms to the Bible, such as truthful, inerrant, and infallible. No matter what term you use, the church from its outset was united in its belief that the Word of God is true and contains no error. Listen to this. The first significant challenge to this belief did not arise until the 17th century, just a couple of hundred years ago. Now, Allison quotes from a number of the church fathers to support his point that this has historically been what the church has believed. Let me give you one example. Clement of Rome, he writes, You have searched the scriptures which are true. You know that nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is written in them. Irenaeus writes, The scriptures are indeed perfect. Now, when the early church fathers spoke of the infallibility of Scripture, they they were really saying two different things. First of all, they were saying that what Scripture affirms corresponds with reality. Whatever the Scripture says is true, is true. It corresponds to reality. Listen to Tertullian. The statements of Holy Scripture will never be discordant with truth. Augustine was even clearer. Listen to Augustine. I have learned to ascribe to those books which are of canonical rank, those books that are part of the canon. We've talked about that. And only to them such reverence and honor that I firmly believe that no single error is found in any one of them. In addition to believing that the Scripture, whatever it said, corresponded with reality, they also believed that when the Scripture spoke, it didn't contradict itself. Again, listen to several of the early church fathers. Irenaeus writes, All Scripture which has been given to us by God shall be found by us perfectly consistent. Justin Martyr, who was probably discipled by the Apostle John, writes, I am entirely convinced that no Scripture contradicts another. Athanasius, It is the opinion of some that the Scriptures do not agree or the God who gave them is false, but there is no disagreement at all, far from it. Neither can the Father, who is truth, lie, for it is impossible that God should lie. Fast forward to the Reformation. This was, again, the one voice of the Reformers. Let me give you one example from the pen of Martin Luther. He writes, Everyone indeed knows that at times the fathers have erred as men. The early church fathers weren't always right. Therefore, I am ready to trust them only when they prove their opinions from Scripture. And then he adds, which has never erred. The Westminster Confession, the summary of the doctrine 
the Puritan vines believes, calls the Scripture, quote, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It speaks of, quote, the entire perfection of Scripture and the consent of all of the parts. Folks, understand this. Until the last several hundred years, no one in church history seriously questioned the inerrancy of Scripture. So the question is, why? Why didn't they? How did all the great minds of church history come to understand this great truth? Well, that brings us to the biblical argument, because this is clearly taught in Scripture. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music